There's so much going on in the world right now. Why should civilians really be interested or invested or, or support or donate or care about veterans organizations and especially now that we're pulling back a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still important um, because a lot of people assume that they're taken care of when they return from um, the service, when they get out of service, they're kind of taken care of for life. And that's not the reality of the situation. There are some benefits available to them, but um, but people sometimes have a perception that they are well taken care of, that they're not going to be on the streets, um, that they're going to have housing, they're going to have food to eat. And that's not always the case. And I think it's really important right now, just because, I mean, particularly with COVID, um, everything is heightened, you know, heightened need for things that didn't, that existed. So if somebody was having food problems pre-COVID, their food problems have not gotten any better. They've gotten worse because, you know, scarcity of food, um, you have to buy things that are higher priced because the lower price stuff is all gone. Um, access to go get the food, you know, veterans who walked or took public transportation now may be at risk and, and the, you know, they're not ways for them to get the food. So there's just a lot of um, things because of COVID that really have kind of heightened all the problems that they were having previously. This is episode number 227 with Soldiers Angels CEO, Amy Palmer. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You know, with so much going on in the world, it can be really easy to forget that the men and women who serve in our military, as well as their families, continue to bear the weight of our freedom. From World War II veterans to active duty veterans, we as Americans own a great debt to those who honorably serve. And organizations like Soldiers Angels, started by the great grandniece of General Patton himself, have stepped forward to offer that support and fill in the gaps left by our government. In this episode, Soldiers Angels CEO, Amy Palmer shares the history of this organization and teaches about the evolution of veterans support, the landscape landscape of the nonprofit world, and important points anyone interested in the nonprofit world needs to know. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Soldiers Angels CEO, Amy Palmer. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. So as a military widow and then a veteran services officer, and now through my work with American Snippets, I've watched the landscape of support for military and veteran community change a lot over the 16 years since my husband was killed in Iraq. I've had the really good grace to be on both the receiving end of that support and on the supporting end of that support as I got to be on the boards of some organizations that I once got support through. So I've learned a lot about the nonprofit world in general, and I've learned that as much as a nonprofit may lead with pure intent, that alone is nowhere near enough to sustain it or allow it to thrive and make an impact in the very competitive world of the nonprofit business because it really is a business in a lot of ways. Sometimes it can be even more daunting than the for-profit world when people jump in and they're unaware of, of the climate in the nonprofit world. Soldiers Angels now, though, has been soaring past some of these pitfalls and obstacles for years, and they've earned really impressive top awards 
and recognitions for the work. Amy Palmer is here today to talk about this organization, her role in it, and the ins and outs of the nonprofit world. Amy, thank you for taking the time away from what I know is a very busy schedule to sit down and speak with us today. Thank you for having me today. And it's a, it's a great topic to talk about, not only military and veteran security, but the landscape as a whole. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? And if you're new to it and you're just go in leading with your heart, you're in for you're in for some some big surprises. <laughs> I think, you know, trial by fire, a lot of people. I will definitely get into all that. That's a, a ton to talk about there. But let's go first right into Soldiers Angels. Talk about the organization and the work that you all do. Sure. Soldiers Angels provides aid and comfort to our service members, our wounded heroes, and our veterans of all generations. Um, our organization was started by General Patton's family when one of the great grandnieces, um, the great grandniece of General Patton, Patty Patton, started the organization when her son was actually deployed to Iraq. Initially, when the um, program started, she was really focused on just getting care packages to deployed service member to um, her son, Brandon, and fellow members of his unit. So she set up a website and enlisted a lot of people to adopt a, a deployed service member and support them during deployment. Awesome. That's a that's a rich history right there. So how do, how has that evolved over the years and into what you're doing today? What are some of the things that you all are doing today? Yeah. So as you talked about a little bit, you know, right after 9-11, there was so much support for military and veteran charities and charities popped up everywhere from care package um, groups and garages to all sorts of nonprofits at that point. And uh, money flowed in. You know, people were looking for a way somewhere to put it to support the population of people when they didn't know how. Um, things have changed since then, of course. You know, deployments have drawn down. It's no longer um, the first thing you hear about on the news. And so, of course, money for the for that support is also drawn down as well. Um, so when those things started to change, we really shifted and started supporting veterans and and. So what we did, because money did get tight during that time frame, was look at how we can use what we were already receiving to support a different population. So a lot of the snack items that were in um, care packages, the beef jerky, the uh, granola bars, the nuts, the tuna pouches, we started repurposing those, the excess of those to make um, non-perishable box lunches for homeless and low-income veterans. Um, so veterans that came into the VA for housing services or for other services, they would be able to have access to a non-perishable box lunch. We also started taking the travel size toiletries and uh, using those to make hygiene kits um, because the VAs don't provide hygiene um, for veteran patients who are hospitalized. Um, as kind of a rule of thumb, as civilian facilities do. And so we started repurposing those items to support VAs. Um, and of course, we had bulk items, you know, uh, popcorn and Girl Scout cookies and coffee and all sorts of things. And, and so, you know, we could no longer send pallets of those overseas. So we started using those at VA medical centers and for National Guard units and, and active duty installations. Nice. Have you guys, have has it changed more now to the, the community of veterans that you're serving, are you serving largely post 9-11 veterans or are you seeing more Vietnam and even World War II veterans and Korean War veterans uh, come into your into your line of sight? Um, you know, it really depends on the program. And, and that's a good question. Um, the VAs are actually reporting who they're serving is about 50-50 now. Um, most VAs went over that threshold about uh, two years ago where they where the, the population was kind of even between the two. Uh, most people think of VAs serving an elderly population, but they're actually pretty balanced. Um, for some of our services, it's, it's about 50-50. Um, some of our services like our food distribution and our services for low income, we're seeing um, more of the pre-9-11 veterans 
And part of the reason is a lot of our post 9-11 have disability benefits, um, maybe military retirement, medical disability, social security disability, caregiver statements. They have they have some of those things that um, their income is a little more stable. Some of the older ones never filed for benefits or they have left civilian jobs now and, and aren't using and accessing the VA benefits that they're eligible for. And so we're finding a lot of those population applying for like our food distributions. So in, in print, for instance, with our food distribution, we're still about 70% pre 9-11 and, and a large portion of those are over 60. What do you, when you say food distribution, what do you mean? So um, some of our services in the VAs include food services. Um, we do the non-perishable box lunches, which I mentioned. We also do canteen gift cards for the VA cafeterias. So um, if a veteran is fasting for dialysis or chemo or at the VA for homeless services and they can't afford to eat, then they can then the VAs on our behalf will give them a gift card to eat at the VA cafeteria. Um, the third area of our food support is our mobile food distributions. And in six cities currently around the country, we offer a monthly mobile food distribution. Um, each family gets about 75 pounds of food. Um, we serve 200 families. So we buy about 20,000 pounds of food at each of those events and serve um, a little over 200 veterans at each of those. And so those are really great events. Um, but as I mentioned, with that program, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of older veterans that are applying and meeting the income eligibility criteria more than post 9-11. Nice. And what do you do? I saw that you have a pretty special touch that you do to assist veterans who find home home uh, who find housing through the HUD-VASH program. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So um, we you know, as we've kind of shifted to the veteran population more and, um, and, you know, we're kind of stabilizing financially and such, we added some additional programs. So the canteen gift cards we added last year, um, the tra uh, transportation services, which I didn't have a mentioned yet to get um, veterans to the VAs for appointments. We That's do a big them. one. That's a big one. I remember yeah. when I worked as a veteran services officer, we get a lot of calls from people saying, we can't get a ride, you know, can yeah. we get a ride? This was, uh, our county had to start its own program to drive yeah. them. And that was even difficult to do. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. People don't think about that often, right? That's not something that's really on a lot of people's radar. So it's cool that you guys include that now that yeah, I've interrupted. That's, that's very true. And, and they're, you know, um, veterans are missing dialysis and chemo yeah. treatments because they can't, they don't have transportation, which is terrible to think about um, happening. And, and so we do provide those transportation, Uber, Lyft, public transportation and Greyhound, you know, and right now, of course, if they have a, a compromised immune system with dialysis or chemo right now, public transportation is not a great option for them, yeah. um, particularly if they haven't been vaccinated. And so, you know, Uber, Lyft is a better option for them. Um, we are also transporting um, homeless that were COVID positive using medical transport um, because they needed to be housed for those two weeks to quarantine. And so um, to getting them from the VAs to wherever they were, the VA was housing them was also a big deal for a while. Um, but, you know, we do provide those transportation. We don't want anybody missing an important appointment that really is critical to their health care. So we work with the social workers who, um, who recommend them for, our, for the service and then are able to book them using our transportation services to get them to and from those appointments. But um, but that was a new one as well as the um, what you were talking about, our homeless veteran housing packs. Um, we do that program um, for veterans that are getting housed in HUD-VASH, which you mentioned. Um, HUD-VASH is um, Veteran Affordable Housing Program, a partnership with HUD. So it's similar to Section 8 housing. Um, the big difference is they're assigned a VA social worker that case manages them during that process and helps them get you know benefits and finances and job hunting and all those things in place. 
Um, but to be eligible for HUD bash, they have to be chronically homeless. So they had to be living in the streets or under a bridge. Um, they can't be um, house hopping from friend to friend. They had to literally be homeless. And uh, and so most of them just have their backpacks or what they had with them. And so we give them moving kits that include bedding and dishes and toiletries and shower curtains and all those things that you need when you first get into a place. So um, there's some great big boxes. They're delivered straight to their door. As soon as they get their keys, we put in the order and they're delivered straight to them so that they have the things that they need for their housing. All right. So I want to step back here for a minute and get into a couple of things that you just mentioned, just go a little bit deeper into the message some on that. For the transportation, for instance, because this has been a very unusual year in this country, all over the world, really. But have you seen, have you had to adjust, or I'm not even going to say have you had to, I'm sure you have. Uh, how have you had to adjust during COVID? Were these veterans still getting into their appointments for their dialysis and chemo? Were you still able to transport them? How? What's that looked like? Yeah, so for critical appointments, they were still getting their treatments at the VA. So if they were scheduled for dialysis and chemo, those things did continue. Um, some of the kind of basic um, uh, urgent care sorts of things and, and other basic things, if they could push them off, they did push them off, um, or they went they went elsewhere to an urgent care facility and things like that. But anybody that had kind of critical things, they did still uh, use the VA. So we were still transporting them and still are transporting them. Um, the, the money we're spending on transport has actually gone up because um, a lot of them would get bus vouchers. And now with COVID, some because of their compromised immune systems, a lot of them that were previously taking the bus aren't able to. Um, and for a while, you know, buses have been on limited run schedules. And so we've had to shift more of them to Uber and Lyft services that, pri that previously were using bus tickets. So our cost of that has gone up. Plus, then we added the medical transport to for COVID positive veterans who are homeless, the VA's housing offsite. Um, to be able to get them there, which is pretty expensive because you have to have, you know, specialized transportation for those kinds of services when someone tests positive. Yeah. What about the homelessness support that you're providing? You mentioned something, I don't know if it was, if people were able to catch it quickly because you mentioned a really big factor in that situation and the term chronically homeless. I remember this again, when I was working as the VSO, and how difficult that was to tell people who were, they had no home of their own. And so their choice was to live on somebody's couch who was kind enough to offer them room, especially if there's a child involved, say, hey, you know, you can come stay on our couch in this nice warm weather for X amount of days, or you can sleep on the floor. Like they're still homeless, but they don't qualify for this program. So they're faced with the decision to actually literally live on the streets for a little while or have shelter in order to get long-term shelter, they have to give up short-term shelter. Do you hear any pushback from that, from the veterans you serve or in the community? Is there still, when I was working in the field, uh, there was some pushback on that and a lot of, a lot of conversation around that. And it was sort of a hot topic and mostly for people on the front lines, working with the veterans who had to say, who had to actually tell a veteran, no, you're not actually homeless when they were, you know, <laughs> And right, so right. they were kind of seen as the bad guy, just not helping the veteran, but their hands were tied and there was so much frustration. And really, it was very emotional for the people who had to go face to face with the veterans and say, I'm sorry, you don't qualify. Do you experience any of that on your end or has that all happened by the time? Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a difficult kind of fine line there in, in terms of um, where they've been staying, you know, sleeping in a car or staying on a, a friend's couch. Um, may void their you know, eligibility for the short term for the program. And, 
And so, you know, being under a bridge, um, you know, of course, those things, um, that, that's really what they're looking for in chronic homelessness. Um, and part of the reason is that's the way the program was created and, and the, um, the package was written and funded. Um, but also, there's not enough vouchers to go around. And so, you know, serving those most critical, I think, is really important. And so, and, and then finding places that will actually take the voucher. Um, is a challenge too, especially in this hot market, you know, with the housing market being so crazy right now. Um, and people, instead of buying, are renting more than they were previously just because they don't want to spend an extra $50,000 to buy a house. Um, and they're waiting for the market to settle out. And so um, property rentals and apartments and condos and things have gone up. And so it's harder to find, for them to be able to use their voucher. Um, so it is a kind of a difficult fine line, but knowing just the sheer volume of people that have that need for the program, um, you know, getting the people off the streets, they are using most of the vouchers as it is. And so um, if somebody, if there are vouchers available and somebody's close to qualifying, you know, just kind of working with them to say, okay, this is what you can do to to be eligible for the program. And so, you know, we're able to work with them on that um, to get them there, but I would not only recommend that if there are vouchers available. So it kind of defeats the purpose if, if there aren't vouchers available at the time that they're wanting to make that transition. Um, but it is, it is a fine line. I mean, I'm so thankful for the program and I'm so thankful that they have it. And I've just been, seen so many veterans go through that program who, who have come a long way. And, and it, I mean, we, it, it's a great program, but there are some things that, you know, are, are, you know, we, we wonder why they were designed like that, but a lot of it's just sheer volume and demand. Yeah. And the same can be said for nonprofits too, right? Like there's only, you cannot help every single person in the entire country or, you know, the entire yeah. world, there is a limit to what a nonprofit can do. And I know that that can be difficult too. And for whatever reason, somebody comes to a nonprofit for help. A lot of times that person has already struggled with the decision to come to the nonprofit mm -hmm. to, to ask for help is an enormous challenge for so many of us is what gets in the way of so many people getting help is asking for help or admitting you need it. So sometimes by the time a person has got to the door of a nonprofit, to the, the phone center of a nonprofit or email and put that application in, they've been dealing with things for a very, very long time. And they're past the point only to find out that they're ineligible for that nonprofit's criteria, or they there's a wait list or something. Do you guys deal with any of that? Are you what is the rate of people that you are for some reason that you have to tell are ineligible for for your services, or just that there's a wait or something? Like what what does that look like for you all? Yeah, that's one of the great things I think about um, kind of the marketplace settling down a bit in terms of military and veteran support agencies. You know, for a long time, there were a lot of them. And, um, and you know, the, if somebody needed help with rent, they would go to 30 places. And, you know, 29 of them were out of money at that particular time, or the window for applications wasn't open or whatever reason or they only do post 9-11 or, or something. And so um, so there were there was a lot more of that previously when there were a lot more agencies. I think now that um, that the pool has kind of thinned out a little bit and the leaders have kind of stepped forward, um, a lot of them are working more collaboratively to get those services to the right people. And so, um, and, and they have partnerships with those various agencies. So, you know, we don't do direct financial assistance. And so when people need rent and, utilities and those sorts of things. We do have partners that do that. And so, um, 
you know, being able to work with those partners to make sure that people are getting what they need is really important and also defining your space. And so when we're, whenever we have money and we're able to add something new, you know, we, we discuss what's available, what's, where's the need that we can fill versus duplicating what someone else does so that we can um, stay in our space and fill those needs and let them fill what they do. And so I think that landscape has settled out some. Um, it is still a bit of a problem because a lot of times the veterans do wait um, until they're in desperate need. And so their rent may be multiple months behind or their utilities have already been shut off or getting shut off tonight. Or, um, But they also need other things. They need help with their disability claim. They need a service dog. They need legal. You know, And so there's really not a one, one person that can do all those things for them. And so piecemealing that out to the right partners is really what's really important for the veterans versus just sending them off to go find the next resource. And so um, I think we're doing as a as a group as a whole. I think we're doing a lot better job, really helping them navigate that system. Do you have a network or a list of nonprofits and resources that you've vetted yourself that you're able to comfortably send these veterans to? We do, and we are also in a network um, with a couple of other agencies that um, that we can put a veteran in the network for and say, hey, this this is what this veteran needs. And we can actually go see who's working with that veteran. So I could pull that veteran back up and say, okay, they've been, they're working here, they're getting here. And so I know what they are. I know what those metrics look like versus just passing them off to somebody. Um, so there's two agencies particularly that, that do a lot of that resourcing that we work with. And we can kind of see how that's happening for those veterans. Um, but because we have MOUs with different agencies for different things and are partnering a lot more with more agencies, um, we we have better relationships to be able to make a call and say, hey, this person's really desperate. Or we know kind of the timelines of, a, of an agency's eligibility windows and how their applications work and whether someone, you know, right off the bat would probably be eligible um, based on the criteria. So we've gotten a lot better about that. And we do have a lot of, of agencies that we work closely with that provide those various services. That's a game changer right there for you and for the people that you're serving to not have to bounce around independently and get lost and start the whole system all over again every time they go somewhere. And also to help prevent people from abusing the support systems as well. I'm sure you guys have come across that. I think I think no good deed goes unpunished. So on the flip side, while there's organizations that, uh, that exploit the people that they propose to serve, there's also people that need the help, that ask for help, that exploit the organizations because that's just human nature. You're never going to weed all of that out. You're never going to have that perfect system, that perfect balance of pure-hearted people on really any surface. You know, there's just that's just human human fallibility there. So that that spills into every field, into everything. So I think to have a system like that where you're able to check and see what this person has been through already would be monumentally helpful in, in assuring that those people who are draining the resources from people who really need it or are eligible for it. I mean, would you agree, disagree? Am I talking like way off in something that you don't experience? No, or, yeah. no, I agree. Um, for us to be able to go in and, and say, okay, we sent this person, what have they been doing or who, who's helping them is really important, especially if they're in a you know, in a, in a small community. So um, like we use combined arms a lot and they're Houston based and they, but they cover, you know, a lot of markets. And so being able to say, okay, I have this person who lives in this small community um, that they're getting, they're still getting support. And, 
And a lot of times when a veteran initially comes in, they may come in for one thing. So they may come in because their utilities are getting shut off today. But when you give them that form and it says, do you need this and this and this, they need other things too. Right. And, um, and, and part of it is why they've created that. So they may also need food and they, you know, may also need clothing and, and legal help and all those things, you know, combined and to be able to have resources that do that because, you know, somebody that does financial assistance probably does not do VA claims at the same time. And so, you know, giving those, those, those access, but for me to be able to say, okay, I sent this person, what is he getting to see that actually happening versus just blindly passing them off? Because, you know, previously I never knew whether they got anything like that. Here's a few places that provide financial assistance. Right. Um, I didn't know whether they ever got it. And so seeing this and being able to get those metrics is really important. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you guys have any kind of requirements for the status of a discharge for, for a veteran to be eligible? Um, it depends on the program, not for most of our stuff that's done through the VA. So if they're eligible for VA services, then they would be eligible for those. So transportation and, and the canteen gift cards and almost that are in housing packs, of course, those are done through their social workers. And so if they're getting services from them, we don't we don't get any additional documentation, documentation from them because they've already been vetted by the VA. Oh, but that um, makes sense. That makes too much sense to work that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we don't, don't have make to them file all anything. that paperwork. You don't make them find a form that most people don't even know they have or where they last saw it. That's just, that makes too much sense. I don't know. You might have to change that and make it a little more difficult to to be just. It it does make it so much easier. Oh my goodness. Yes. They've gone through all that stuff to get in the program or to get their benefits and and for us to ask and require the same things when we know that's a requirement for them just doesn't make sense. And it just makes it a lot easier um, for the veterans and and for the social workers to know if I submit them for this, they're going to get it. I don't have to yeah. wait to find out if they're going to get it. If I submit them, they're going to get their ride. And That's so it cool. just makes things a whole lot easier for everybody. That's cool. So what brought you into this line of work that you're doing now? Did you just stumble across Soldiers Angels one day and say, that looks cool? But you know, how did, what what's the path that led you here? Yeah, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. So um you know, just, I, I didn't intend to be here at any point in my life. Um, but you know, everything happens, I think the way it's intended to, but, um, ultimately, um, I was in the air force. Uh, I was, my first duty assignment was Osan Korea and I met my husband in Osan. Um, we got married on my, on my mid tour. Uh, he was already getting reassigned. And so we got married, uh, so we could join spouse and, and move together. And I was um, ultimately med boarded. I had a back injury that ultimately required back surgery. Um, back then, they were keep they were not keeping people with those sorts of injuries. I mean, if if I had been post 9/11, I probably could have stayed a long time with my back injury. But um, but pre 9/11, they were a little bit um, more stringent on the medical um, kind of fitness issues. And so I was med boarded out of the military. And you know, luckily for me, I had a second income in the family, um, but I was in it, you know, by the time they decided that I was out in 90 days. And so had I not had a second income, um, had I not been able to find a job quickly, um, you know, it would have been a bad situation. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of those that come back that are injured, um, you know, don't have that. They're the primary breadwinner. So it, it really um, opened my eyes about, you know, the situations that some of them go through. Um, but even when I was on active duty, I was always the social person. I was always the one um, handling holiday parties, um, getting items for drawings and and uh, CFC. You know, I was the one going around asking people to contribute to CFC, um, could buy federal campaign. So, you know, I was always that kind of person in the military. And so it was kind of an easy transition. 
um, from the military into the nonprofit environment. Um, I came to Soldiers Angels. I was working for another nonprofit and worked a lot with Soldiers Angels. Um, we did a lot of projects together. So I knew Patty Patton. Um, we had talked previously about me joining Soldiers Angels and and I wasn't really interested. But when she told me she was retiring and she was going to close the organization, um, I'm like, OK, no, I'll I'll I'll, I'll come help. So, um, you know, the, I, I just when at first I kind of looked at um, what they had, where they were, um, did it make sense to close? And, you know, the volunteers are really what convinced me. I mean, the hundred over a hundred thousand volunteers who had supported deployed service members. We had over 180,000 that had adopted a service member at one point. Wow, that's and, awesome. Um, and some people that really soldiers angels was a huge part of their life. I mean, we have some with tattoos of our logo. Um, and so that's a lot next of level, people, that's next yeah, level commitment. Right yeah. There. I mean, a yeah. lot of big fans of, of, you know, the work that they do with soldiers angels. And, and to me, I was like, Oh my gosh, I, I hate the thought that they're not going to have soldiers angels and, and not be able to do this. And so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll come and take the organization over. So I've been here about eight years now. Um, and you know, at the time money was tight because, you know, of course, as things, things dropped and money stopped and people were passionate, they all, they may not know, have known how to run a nonprofit. And so the infrastructure really wasn't in place in a lot of areas. Um, they, you know, people with big hearts, um, but, um, but, you know, knowing how to, how to fundraise and how to put that all in a database to manage the donor relationships and all those things, you know, that's something that is a profession and is a business um, versus just the passion. And you can be taught it, but, you know, it's, it's a hard transition. And so when things started drawing down and, and money um, got tighter, um, you know, financially, the organization was in, was in a, a, a situation where, you know, closing might have been a good option, but We'd had such strong support over the years. Um, you know, I figured we could rally the troops and and get uh, get you know things back on track. So we were able to turn it around in about a year and and really go forward in a positive direction. And so um, it's been a really great experience. So I think it, you know I ended up where I should be at uh, in the right organization, and and I love it. Soldiers Angels is a great place. So one year is not really a long time to make all those changes in an organization like that, and. You were talking about what we were talking about at, in the in the top of the show here that it does take more than heart and passion and good intent to to run this. And for a lot of people, that can be something that is just overlooked when when you believe in something so passionately and you want to do this so passionately. I've seen a gazillion people lead with their hearts and start this campaign or this wave to raise money to do this, and they get in over their heads, and then they they have donors who are angry at them. They have bad reputation because of mistakes that they made, even if they weren't intended to make the, you know, they were, they didn't mean to do these things. They weren't trying to, to do anything, you know, it's shady, but that's perception is everything. And so that's what mm -hmm. happens when they were just caught unawares by the volume. Cause once you put something out there that says, Hey, I'm offering something for free or support or something, you're going to get bombarded with requests mm -hmm. for help. And it's hard for people to say, oops, no, you have to wait, you have to wait. And so, you know, you do whatever you can to pull it together and it's just not sustainable. What are some things that you did within that year? What are some examples of some things you did that you could talk about that might help somebody who's in that sort of situation right now? Yeah. I mean, luckily at the time I came on, I was getting in, you know, into fourth quarter and most nonprofits make uh, the majority of their money in fourth quarter. Um, that's Why is that? Um, 
year end giving, you know, donors a lot of times want to do their giving at year end to close out their taxes. Um, you know, a large of the largest portion of our revenue actually comes in that week between, um, you know, December 25th and, and December 31st. And so, I mean, that's really just flooded in, in terms of individual donations because of year end and, and getting receipts and stuff and tax purposes. Um, and so a lot of nonprofits have shifted onto a fiscal year so that uh, their the fourth quarter, October to December is actually the first quarter because that helps them prepare for the rest of the year in terms of what money they would have because so much of it is backlogged in, in that year um, in, the, in those three months of giving. So, you know, about 75% of total revenue maybe in those three months. Um, so, um, so for me, that's when I kind of came onto the scene with Soldiers Angels. And so it worked out well because, you know, I, an, I anticipated that uptick in donor support because it was year end. Um, we had a lot of in-kind goods, and so um, we had a lot of the hygiene products, a lot of the care package supplies. So even if we weren't able to financially um, buy things to contribute, we had a lot of goods. And so even on a small budget, we could get by. Um, so the first things we really did is, is close down the main office in California. Um, we were working from my kitchen table through through that whole year-end process and that whole cycle um, and, uh, and, you know, laid off staff people and really started back at the beginning of, with bare bones and um, and doing what we could with the in-kind goods initially and repurposing them and, and trying to serve as many as we could without spending a lot of cash. Um, and so we really did a great job with that. But we also had to take all of the donor records that were in Excel and put them into a database. And one thing people really don't think about when they're setting up something like that is, you know, if you've got a donor log in Excel, you don't know whether a donor has given six times, once, whether they passed away, whether they moved, um, you don't have any of that in Excel. And so putting all that stuff into a donor system that manages all that's really important. And so we did that. Is we that a software that you can buy? Yeah, or is that, yeah is that, there's a lot of companies yeah. that provide it. Um, okay. BlackBot is probably the leader in that software. They own several platforms of, of, of donor software. Um, and so we're on one of the BlackBot products, but, um, but it will do the postal change of address updates. Um, you can code a donor as deceased or they don't want mailings or they don't want to be contacted. Um, you can um, you can see how many times they've given, what their potential is, what their lifetime giving is and all those sorts of things. And, and so those are really important details. And so getting that all into an integrated system, getting our volunteers into an integrated system, because I mean, they're your, they're your first source of support um, and, you know, making sure, and they, well, you know, once we had a conversation with them about, okay, this is where we are and this is what we need, they really stepped up during that time when we needed them to do more of the work of sending the packages because financially, you know, we couldn't send a lot um, just because of money and we needed to, you know, get, clear some things up. Um, but we were in a good spot at the time. For people now that approach me and say, hey, I want to start a charity to do service dogs or legal assistance or whatever, um, I'm like you. It's hard. Um, and, and people are passionate and they assume others are going to be passionate. And I tell them before you do that, A, do some research, talk to some people, um, feel people out first um, to get a sense of the support that's available, because I think um, people will realize it's harder than what they think. Um, the second thing I would tell people is um, talk to a church or another organization about taking you on under them, because church, churches are already tax exempt. Other nonprofits are tax exempt. 
And maybe you have an idea that could be a program of an existing organization versus creating your own. Um, because there are a lot of hoops when you have your own. Um, you can start a board with three and it can be your friends and neighbors, but you're not going to get guide star rated with, with that kind of structure. Um, you're not going to get BBB compliance. You know, there's there's a lot. So a lot of grants you're not going to be eligible for. You're, you can't get grants without an audit. You know, so there's a lot of those things um, that it it's really hard and they got to all go into place first. And so a lot of times it's better for them to start as a program of an agency or maybe find somebody that would let them work under their existing nonprofit to really feel it out first before they go that route. That's exhausting just listening to everything that you said right there. And I think that is what ultimately has led to the demise of a lot of good-hearted people. And it's it's good when you see these people not give up and still take that passion and do what you said and align yeah. with an organization that's already existing. You know, it's not everybody's strength to do the business end of it. I, for one, have no business doing the business end of that. You know, that's not my strength. That's why my partner does. So you got to, you know, play to your strengths, I think. And just like with anything, it's hard. It's hard for people to view the nonprofit as a business to run it as a business. Uh, what does it do for you as a nonprofit if there is a scandal? for a nonprofit in your space? I don't know that there's been one in a while. I'm just asking. I know, I know of some in the past, but mm-hmm. what, what does it do if there's, if there is a scandal about mismanagement of funds or something to, what does it do to, or does it do anything to you all when that happens, when that's in the news, when that's out there? Yeah, good question. I mean, it does if it's a large one, um, and and it really depends on what happened. And so there are some organizations that um, that are larger in the space that their overhead may be you know high because they spend money on more money on fundraising, um, direct mail or commercials or other ways to raise money. And so you know sometimes that becomes a big deal. And, you know, donors may not have been checking that and been giving and giving and then something comes out about that. And so donors will get really leery about um, checking nonprofit data. For us, that's not really a concern because, you know, we have a 4% overhead ratio. And so I'm comfortable with that. Um, but they um, but they'll ask more questions, which isn't a bad thing. You know, donors will ask more questions about it. Um, but in some cases, like with direct mail, there, there have been a lot of veteran agencies that have really formed for the purpose of sending out direct mail and getting money from people and not using it for the purpose. And, and that has been a problem. And so for any organizations that have a direct mail program, um, that really does jeopardize that program because a lot of the same donors, you know, there's a group of people that give during direct mail and there's kind of a target um, donor that gives dr- through direct mail. And so if one of those agencies does it in the space, then it can impact others. And, and actually, um, you know, a lot of nonprofits don't realize, especially, you know, national nonprofits. So if you're fundraising in in states, you have to be registered to solicit in those states and 32 states require registration. So for us, we have to register in all 32 states and pay the registration fee every single year to be able to solicit in those states. And and so some agencies don't register solicit or they don't know they were supposed to, uh, or they do a marketing campaign where, you know, a portion of proceeds of something that's being sold goes to the charity. And if that's not registered, you know, there's just a lot of potential um, downfall that they may not even realize exists. But, you know, it does impact the space as a whole when those sorts of things happen. Um, and, and, and in fact, Texas for veteran agencies requires we get a surety bond to even register to solicit. And so I have to have a surety bond with a bond company to even register to solicit in Texas because of how bad that has been in, in Texas for those veteran agencies, um, you know, getting money from people saying they're supporting veterans. So it does impact all of us. 
Is that just for the, that bond that you need? Is that just for the veteran services organizations? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And That's particularly crazy. because they've had such scandal in that space. Wow. I, I didn't know that one. I just learned something, a little something new today too. I love it. Uh, so tell us why should civilians care about this with so much going on in the world right now? Why should civilians really be interested or invested or, or support or donate or care about veterans organizations and especially now that we're pulling back a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still important um, because a lot of people assume that they're taken care of when they return from um, the service, when they get out of service, they're kind of taken care of for life. And that's not the reality of the situation. There are some benefits available to them, but um, but people sometimes have a perception that they are well taken care of, that they're not going to be on the streets, um, that they're going to have housing, they're going to have food to eat. And that's not always the case. And I think it's really important right now, just because, I mean, particularly with COVID, um, everything is heightened, you know, heightened need for things that didn't, that existed. So if somebody was having food problems pre-COVID, their food problems have not gotten any better. They've gotten worse because, you know, scarcity of food, um, you have to buy things that are higher priced because the lower price stuff is all gone. Um, access to go get the food, you know, veterans who walked or took public transportation now may be at risk and, and the, you know, they're not ways for them to get the food. So there's just a lot of um, things because of COVID that really have kind of heightened all the problems that they were having previously. Um, the housing issues, the housing market has really impacted. Rents have gone up um, for people trying to move and, and get housing. So all of those COVID variables impact veterans, um, you know, and, and the rate of veterans being homeless, you know, during COVID has actually increased as well, partly because of the housing market. So, um, so I do think it is important to recognize that the veterans still have needs. Um, and a lot of people don't really understand why veterans have needs. And a lot of, you know, and that's part of the reason we serve quite a few older veterans is because a lot of them never file for disability. And so going back 40 years later to file for VA disability is really hard to prove that happened while you're in the military. It's a lot easier if you do it as you're getting out. Yeah. Um, because you've got those service years, but when you have that gap and you've done a lot of other things, proving that it happened then is really difficult. And so there's a lot of those veterans that are waiting on those benefits to start that um, that weren't prepared to be in that situation. So um, I think it's important for us to keep it on the forefront. And, and you know, garden reservists are a real big issue right now, just with the number activated. So um, and since COVID, more garden reservists have been deployed than any time in the U.S. history since World War II. And so we have more garden reservists that are deployed right now for vaccines, for um, border issues, for nursing home sanitation. And, and so there's a lot of them and, and coming out of civilian jobs to be activated and a lot of times making less money. Um, there's a whole new population of, of need in that space. So I do think it's important that we just keep it on the forefront because they are protecting our freedom overseas, but also here in the U.S., you know, with natural disasters, especially with COVID right now. They're doing so much, uh, even running a lot of the vaccine clinics and some of the some of the really hard hit areas, L.A., New York City and such. And uh, and, you know, just showing them appreciation for their service and sacrifice. Yeah, I love that you all are doing that. I love that. you're out there. I can feel your energy. Like it's a I don't know how people keep up with you. If this is like all the time, it's great. It's really good. It keeps keeping it makes me want to like get up and go, you know, so I guess that's a perfect, perfect power to have in your position. I mean, if people want to find out about Soldiers, Angels and find out about how to volunteer, is there a better place than another to go to find out about that or just your website? 
Our website is the best. We have great social media platforms, but I, I think, um, and so for things going on, that's a great place, but soldiersangels.org is really the best. Um, our volunteer page we've updated since COVID has a lot of great information about virtual opportunities. So there are a lot of people that are still wanting virtual volunteerism and, you know, making those of blankets and paracord and supporting our various campaigns. Like we're doing our sock drive right now. You know, those sort of things are great for virtual. Um, but one of the good things about Soldiers Angels is all of our teams are deployed adoptions and supporting deployed and our caregiver program and our adoptive family, all those, everything ha happens by mail anyway. So we can use volunteers no matter where they're located. We have volunteers in every state in 31 foreign countries that send care packages to deployed or send, we have a baby shower, a virtual baby shower or our caregiver support program. Everything is done by mail. So, you know, they can be anywhere, which is really great. Um, volunteers in small towns, disabled volunteers, um, homebound volunteers, you know, as long as they have somebody who can do that or get them or even writing a letter and put a stamp on it, um, they can be anywhere. So our website is really great because it has all of those COVID kind of virtual volunteer opportunities. It has all of our campaigns. Um, and then, of course, all of our vet support opportunities in the various VAs. Right now, a lot of VAs were supporting the vaccine, um, the vaccine clinics. And so we're helping veterans you know, fill out their forms, giving them snacks and water while they're waiting. Or, or after they're shot while they're waiting. And so um, that's really a big area of us for supporting the VA. So if they're near a VA, um, that's available on our website too. But it really has a lot of great information and the best information is there for anybody wanting to volunteer or donate. Awesome, thank you so much. Before we sign off, is there anything that we didn't punch on or hit on that you'd really like people to know about what you're doing or getting across? Um, well, I think one of the great things about Soldiers Angels, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit, is we um, we have a lot of different service areas, and we offer a lot for people to donate to if they're wanting to donate to a specific need or wanting to volunteer in a specific area. We offer a lot for everybody. So um, hopefully people will come to the website and see something that's a really good fit for their passion. So I think it's important for people to align with what they're passionate about, and hopefully we'll be able to make them, you know, help them be able to find that fit. So um, you know, it's a great place. As you mentioned, we are four-star rated. Our overhead is, is only 4%. So we're lean and efficient and we do a lot of great work for soldiers and service members and veterans and wounded heroes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you guys reached out to us so we could learn more about you as well. And so we could be a small part of spreading the word about your organization. Please do stay in touch. If you have any big initiatives coming up, you want us to push out, we'll be happy to do that and support you all in any way we can. So thank you for taking the time again to be with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up another episode of the American Sippets Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you got any value out of this episode, please leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. Share this podcast with a friend. Share one of your favorite episodes on social media. Make sure you follow us on social, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at American Snippets. Uh, if you want to learn more about Soldiers, Angels, and what they do, make sure you head on over to americansnippets.com forward slash newsletter. It's a featured episode of the week. Check out the show notes. There's some links there that you can use to follow them on social, donate, learn more about them and their cause as well. They do amazing work, and we really appreciate uh, Amy Palmer taking the time to you know join us today on today's show and tell us about uh, all the amazing things that Soldiers Angels does for our veterans and the veteran military 
community. And if you haven't done so yet, please head on over to greatamericansyndicate.com. This is our networking community. We are building a community here of patriotic, freedom-loving Americans just like you who believe in personal responsibility, individual liberty, the American dream, and in giving back. We support our veterans, our military, uh, active duty military, our police and first responders. And we would love to see you inside. We would love to have you a part of the conversation. We have a nationwide uh, uh, perks and discounts program as well, uh, plus a ton of other benefits when you become a member today. So become a patriot. Go to greatamericansyndicate.com to learn more. Again, we appreciate you being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are. <music> 